Hey everybody, welcome back to Terminus, the borrowing the opening band's cab of extreme metal podcasts. <laughs> I am the death metal guy, aka dealing with gate creeper in a purely self-defense situation. <laughs> uh, and I am the black metal guy, aka goblin heretic. <laughs> like a heretic that is a goblin or a goblin with heretical beliefs. Um, wait, wouldn't those be the same? Well, no, I mean, you could be a, you, you could be a, a maybe a, a goblin posing as a priest in the church, and you're actually, a, mm. you're heretical because you are a goblin, or perhaps there is some sort well, of, like, you could, mythic goblin animism that you were betraying as a that's goblin. That's what I was thinking, yeah, you could either be, um, yeah, a heretic, okay, yeah, yeah, I see, no, a heretic who is a go- that you could be a heres a heretic from goblindom, in other words, <laughs> or you could be um, a goblin who is a heretic. Um, You're adopting uh, the gnome gods instead. Yeah, um, I think um, I just wanted to go for something uh, nice and classic. <laughs> You're also just kind of describing like uh, the perverted dexterity album cover with goblin heresies. That's immediately what I thought of when I said that phrase. So I must be. <laughs> I mean, that's certainly one of the most memorable album covers of the year. I was about to say, I love how that album cover stuck with us. And I I like how one of the guys on our Discord uh, pointed out that it was actually part of a series of Goblin album covers by that project. That Mm -hmm. kind of tell us an evolving Goblin shamanic story, which is so great for a brutal death band. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, man. All right, enough goblins. You know, we got to talk about black metal, which is, you know, at least, I guess, tangentially goblin-esque. Um, real quick, no Goblin, I to... think goblin adjacent. <laughs> goblin adjacency uh. is... <laughs> yes, that sounds... <laughs> that, that'll be the next uh, wave of, like, modern political discussion. Goblin yeah, a black adjacency. metal, a genre, a genre nefariously, nefariously associated with goblins... <laughs> and that's why it needs to change. <laughs> discover the discover the young new musicians fighting against goblins in black metal. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so, all right. So, oh fuck. All right. Social media. <laughs> if you haven't clicked off already, which I highly recommend. Um, social media. Uh, me, the death metal guy on Facebook at Terminus Podcast, or uh, the black metal guy on Instagram at Terminus Extreme Metal, or uh, feel free to subscribe to us on Patreon or Subscribestar. Uh, $3 and up gets you access to the Terminus Prime bonus episodes, and $5 and up gets you access to uh, the Terminus Black Circle, our private Discord circle, private Discord server, which is also a circle. Um, where you can discuss actually pretty elaborate topics today, like what's your favorite dinosaur and a long analysis of the role of the Pacific Theater in World War II. Um, it's getting heady. It's usually just me. That actually sometimes... sounds really good. No, ah, it was good, yeah. yeah. We were, uh, me and Hyper Shaman and a couple other people were talking about, uh, about the Pacific Theater and how it's a, a relatively ignored part of the overall historical context of World War II. Um, T-Rex. <laughs> T-Rex? Uh, I, yeah, I, went with I gotta the, go uh, with a classic. Oh, that's fair. Yeah, you gotta post it in there, man. Um, Alright, so albums. Uh, we got some pretty big ones. 
we've got some uh, some stuff that uh, probably a lot of you have been waiting for. And uh, the first one, right off the bat, uh, it's fucking Skepticism's Companion on Spart Records. Um, no introduction needed. God knows we're both huge fans of Skepticism. Uh, this is the first record in six years since Ordeal from 2015. And spoiler, it's incredible and majestic and you should buy it now. And we'll just spend some time talking about what makes Skepticism still one of the best bands in the world. Um, following that, another record that probably a lot of our listeners were waiting for, and we were too, is the new record by Our Lock, uh, titled uh, Pierre Brulé's. Uh, I don't know. Pierre Brulé, yeah. I don't know when the S is silent and when it's not. Pierre Brulé, yeah. 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 Um, and this is released on uh, Lactures de Lombres, or Ladlow. Uh Hourlock mm-hmm. is one of the original bands uh, kind of responsible for developing the chivalric style of French black metal, as we like to call it. Um, something that's really been uh, carried forth. We've covered a lot of stuff this year off the label Antic, uh, mm-hmm. which has really become kind of the hot spot for that style uh, in a lot of ways. And this is one of the original guys, uh, one of the original bands in the style coming back. So let's see, uh, let's see how it compares after so many years of development. Uh, within this little micro scene. All right. And then after the break, we'll be back with uh, another uh, a sort of parallel to skepticism, another uh, long-awaited return from Finland. This is uh, How to Cameo with uh, Pimaden Kosketos on, of course, Purity Through Fire. Uh, it's loud and it's fast and it's Finnish, but it sounds like it came from Norway. And that's what you need to know. Um, and finally, uh, the very rapid follow-up uh, to last year's uh, last year's debut record. This is uh, Sylvan Coven by Glush uh, on Drevo Recordings, which is basically his own his own label that has Glush and another band. Uh, and um, this is, uh, I suppose atmospheric black metal from Siberia, but as we will discuss, uh, this record took a rather uh, unexpected left turn. All right, first up, Skepticism, Companion. Um, it's uh, it's phenomenal. Uh, we, we can just move on to the next one, but no. Um, so you, we've talked on the show plenty about Skepticism, um, and we're both huge fans of Stormcrow Fleet, but have you ever listened to any like full Skepticism records after that, or do you just stick with that one? Um, I have basically just listened to, uh, yeah, I, I think I, I've listened to Ace after that, mm-hmm. AES, but um, other than that, nothing. Uh, I, yeah, I, which I, I really don't know why. Yeah, I mean it's um, all it's all incredible. So yeah, um, it's um, yeah. But I, I was just curious about that because it's it's interesting looking at people's responses to this record, and you know it, as people are talking about this, they're talking about the discography as well. And I, I'm starting to notice um, kind of just strange patterns in people being into skepticism. So when I first started listening to metal and I first started listening to skepticism, the last record that had come out was Pharmacon in 2003. Um, And then over the years, we're now three albums past that. 
And back in the day, um, it seemed like everyone really rallied around Lead and Aether, the second album, as mm. like the really huge one that everyone liked. But it seems like over the years, Stormcrow Fleet, the debut, has stuck as like the most influential and the one that people constantly go back to. So it's kind of interesting seeing how it's shifted over the years. Um, hmm. But what I also found really interesting was apparently a lot of people didn't like Ordeal in 2015, which I think is a phenomenal record, but apparently there's been an accusation over the past few records that um, skepticism has been leaning a little too into, like, modern romantic doom death, um, which is... I, I, I get in a vague sense, just in that the past two or three records have been a little bit more accessible than the first three, although I think Stormcrow Fleet is still a very accessible record. Um, I, and, I would agree. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, um, I mean, it's, it's not like it's romantic music. You know? It's, yeah, yeah it's, not, it's not, it's not romantic particularly in any I mean, in or in that sense, it's not it's not florid, it's not gothy, uh, mm-hmm. um, but um, I, I find it pretty listenable. I don't know, or I yeah. think I always have. I think I always found it surprisingly listenable. Yeah, so, so it's a very it's a very lush, very like pretty album. You know, I yeah. I remember I used I find to it, play. I find it, it com. Oh, oh, go ahead. I find it comforting. Yeah, no, definitely. I used to listen to it nonstop as a kid. I would listen to it in my house, and my dad would always call it like uh, the soundtrack to a Kurosawa film, like The Seven Samurai mm. or something, which is mm. not a bad way to describe it. Yeah. Um, so with Companion, um, those kind of accessible ideas that people have been complaining about, skepticism has really leaned into, but in what I think is a very interesting way. Um because the thing that's going to immediately hit people when they hear this, and did hit people when the the first single was released, Kala, the first track, mm-hmm. is that it has some of the fastest material that Skepticism's ever done. That being said, Kala is like 70, maybe 80 beats a minute, so it's still very slow. But compared to, you know, Lead and Aether, which is basically like 40 or 50 beats a minute the whole way through... Yeah, it's basically speed metal. Um, But what I found so interesting about this record is that, unlike other Skepticism records, which tend to revolve around a few simple but deep themes that are constantly rearranged and explored from different angles, this record feels like a compilation of very individual songs in a way that Skepticism's never really done before. Um, Every one of these tracks has a very unique kind of identity. It's exploring very different musical ideas, still recognizably Skepticism, but very distinct. Uh, The the process of listening to this record is not one uninterrupted kind of meditative state like the others. They're more vignettes of uh, different, bigger stories. So I'm really interested because it almost feels like this is sort of an R&D record. And if I was to guess, I bet we're not going to have as long a drought between records for the next one as we did the last few. I have a feeling that Skepticism's kind of revitalized and they're actively exploring new ideas in a very concrete way. And I think this is them figuring out 
what direction they want to take on the next one. That being said, this is an album with incredible songs. It's without question going on my end of the year list. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's wonderful as all skepticism is. Um, what did you think about it, especially without the uh, the context of all those middle albums? Uh, what I, I threw me for a loop at first, honestly. Um, I, I knew that, I think you had led me to expect that it might sound more like Stormcrow Fleet, or at least that's what was rumored. Uh, so when I heard it, I was sort of especially, I mean, I, I'd like to think I'd be able to, rec I recognized pretty quickly that that's not what was going on here, but I think it still surprised me. Um, let's say a, a, a slow surprise. Um, <laughs> the, uh, um, so yeah, maybe judging by what you've said, maybe it's closer to the last few records. Uh, it strikes me as very different from Stormcrow Fleet. Uh, it seems, um, structurally, there's a lot of prominent lead guitar here. Is that a feature mm -hmm. of the m newer records? The last couple, and especially Ordeal, yeah, uh, there's been a lot more prominent lead work. Kala comes in with what's basically their version of, uh, of an ACDC riff. Like, that's a <laughs> Hell's Bells arpeggio, or kind of, or I suppose, you know, ACDC via October Tide and all those other bands. Mm. Yeah. You know, well, that's, you see, that's kind of interesting, because I thought that... Um... I, one of my theses about this record is I think that this record is um, kind of moving through the discography in interesting ways. Mm -hmm. I think there's songs that tie to specific albums. And I actually thought that the first couple, like uh, Kala and The Intertwined, actually struck me as being sort of like the biggest moments on Stormcrow Freelite, like uh, The Gallant Crow or something like that. The Intertwined does for sure. Um, mm -hmm. you know, the other thing that was weird to me about Kala was the tempo push. It's like they're, the rhythms are all funeral doom rhythm are all like, you can recognize the rhythms from Stormcrow Fleet, but they're, mm -hmm. they're just pushed strangely fast, almost a lower mid tempo in a way that's like, uh, puts it in one of those weird tempo gray zones that I wasn't sure what to make of. Um, atmospherically, the record as a whole, uh, seems much more personal. Like, the songs are all very different, but they're emotive in a way that uh, Stormcrow Fleet is not. Um, yeah, I'd agree with yeah, that. You know, we've I think we both compared Stormcrow Fleet to, like, being in a landscape with no other people. Mm -hmm. um, things like that. It's a very... It has a kind of somber majesty, but in a very inhuman, remote way. Operates on a vast scale. Changes slowly. Uh, um... It's uh, one reason it's kind of uplifting is that it's just not very concerned with human suffering. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a kind of majestic indifference, right? It's just like here is the mountain. It continues standing there. Uh, well, that's why you know, you've always described it as like a, like a black metal record. Y yes, and also I, I don't. You probably knew this, but it appears that three out of four members were in a black metal record band that sort of didn't really go go much go, like I think in a I don't know like did they release there was a bunch of demos at a full length in 2000 but three of the four current members were in a band called Thromdar 
Yeah, which I've, I've heard now, some of the really early Thromdar stuff. Now I have to research this. It's a, uh, I have to figure out um, what that band sounded like and how it related to skepticism. But, um, yeah, so Stormcrow Fleet for sure had something spiritually connected to black metal. Uh, and I'll get to that on, on my first sample. Well, you know what? We'll get, yeah, let's talk about that and with reference to my first sample. Here is the... Uh, only part that really, to me, really sounds like Stormcrow Fleet, and specifically uh, the most, the parts that like most jump out as sounding like black metal in some way, or super slow black metal. Uh, so this is uh, the intertwined. So, bum ba bum bum ba da bum 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 bum, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that is the uh, melodic technique known as Conanism. Uh, <laughs> um, Just pure, like, barbarian triumph, but uh, people always confuse what triumph means, you know? Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, now they use triumphant to mean sort of like. Uh, happy yeah 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 no he's uh he's conan in the act of triumphing um <laughs> uh, <laughs> caught in the triumph uh as it were um uh as as he as he crushes his enemies and so on um and uh but so the thing is stormcrow fleet actually has a bunch of riffs that are kind of like that or a lot like that that's basically um even the guitar tone, they're using those kinds of uh, inverted power chords. Obviously, much more than just an inverted power chord. Those are big chords. But, you mm -hmm. know, uh, 
sort of like one four harmonizations instead of one five sounds a little more droney uh and and as you pointed out here as on stormcrow fleet uh there are these it, it's you know those intervals are very gravelandy especially that you were pointing out that little pentatonic turnaround flourish at the end of the phrase mm-hmm. yeah i remember the first time i heard that i i've never heard them sound that distinctly graveland or even like i was like wow what's this like bluesy turnaround here it really caught my ear the first time i heard it oh so if you yeah so that's the most extreme version of that but if you go back and listen like i we've talked about this i think it's more noticeable on the uh remastered uh stormcrow fleet uh those they're sort of those guitar textures come to the fore a little more a little less murky but you can hear more of that gravelandy riffing and it's again Influenced by, hard to say, it's 95. I think that's the year uh, Thousand Swords comes out. Uh, um, so, but, you know, definitely some... We've talked about how right at around that time there was clearly something in the water with a number of bands. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, skepticism were distilling, you know, distilling the pagan vibes in early Black Battle to something that elemental, right? Uh, but... um but on that's the only part of the record that does this. I mean, you get also those big descending doomy power chords a little later in the sample also have something in common with that black metal Conan vibe. Um, disappears. Uh, and the mood for the rest of the record is very like, um, instead of being like, um, you know, uh, watching a glacier move or maybe, uh, you know, Conan caught slow-mo in, in Triumphus, uh, in Triumphus Delicto, um, the, uh, <laughs> uh, it sounds like a person having emotions and, yeah. uh, that's not necessarily, that's not at all what I was expecting. And you know that I tend to be biased towards more impersonal stuff in music, but, Damn if it wasn't, uh, it it was hard not to be won over. It's very affecting. Um, Yeah. And really looking back through the discography, Stormcrow Fleet is actually kind of the outlier in the Mm -hmm. Skepticism discography because Skepticism's music has been intensely personal from uh, Lead and Aether onward. Um, I mean, it's entirely possible that Stormcrow Fleet was very personal, but it was couched in just much more abstract terms. As soon mm-hmm. as you get to Lead and Aether and you get to songs like The March and the Stream, um, which has, you know, has eight eight lines of lyrics and they're some of the most heartbreaking stuff that's ever been written. Um, it has a dedication to someone who's passed away at the end. And then ever since then, a lot of their work has been clearly very personal but yeah. deeply abstract at the same time yeah this seems like a love story transposed into mytho mythopo onto a mythic level there's like i mean the intertwined okay that's the, you know that's pretty uh pretty you know love scene march of the four i don't know passage uh, a moment of confrontation or conflict the inevitable doom and then the last track which is this very sweet title right the swan and the raven right so seems like it's you know reflecting on a uh you know i don't know a, a past relationship or a or a or a, a dead spouse or a current relationship even it's funeral doom so it's hard to know you know mm-hmm. yeah no it's, i get you yeah 
Well, uh, speaking of uh, speaking of relationship stuff, um, the March of the Four is what I'm going to look at next, and uh, <clears throat> it's weird. I don't I, I don't think I've ever seen anyone bring this up, but this is the fourth in a series of songs, um, starting with the March in the Stream from Lead and Aether mm-hmm. uh, into March October from Alloy and March Incomplete on Ordeal. Um, which mm. I assume probably all revolve in some way uh, around this individual um, that this song was dedicated to. Um, hmm. Which is, and the March in the Stream is a cornerstone of skepticism. It is one of their most important songs. It's There's always been this sort of quiet mythos around it. They don't talk about it. They've never explained what it's about. They kind of refuse to. Um, but it's always been crucial. But then there's been the sequence of songs that evolve from that original, uh, root on Lead and Aether, uh, kind of similar to the way that, uh, Skepticism used to put out, uh, a lot of EPs in relation to full-length records. Um, there was the Aether EP before Lead and Aether, there was A's, and then there was the process of Pharmacon before Pharmacon. Um, which usually had different arrangements of songs from the related albums. Uh, sort of uh, full-fledged, like, almost orchestral rearrangements. Um, and they're, they're fascinating, and uh, more people should listen to them. But let's listen to what I'm guessing may be the final sequence of the March songs. Um, yeah, let's listen to the March of the Four.
so uh, it, it probably goes without saying, but uh, this album is kind of impossible to sample because, you know, all of these songs are just continuous um, flows of ideas running into each other and transforming. It's, it really does not do any of these tracks justice. But um, that slice, and that was a long one. That was about, you know, close to three minutes long. The sheer number of ideas and the number of things that happen in that sequence is just way beyond anything Skepticism's done on previous records. Um, it's not just that the tempos are a little bit higher on this record, it's the the volume and the pace of the ideas is yeah. dramatically accelerated. Um, yes. Because the, Older skepticism stuff, especially, you know, uh, Lead and Aether, Pharmacon, Stormcrow Fleet, of course, were very content to dwell on very small variations of a simple idea, you know, almost uh, almost like ambient music. But here, you know, these are written, these are, these songs have explosive moments, you know, multiple throughout the tracks that really... Um, keep your attention other skepticism records are much more meditative this is for active listening um and just the the sheer number of peaks and valleys these guys manage to pack into these songs is incredible i mean in that sequence uh we had like three major like emotionally revelatory moments in the context of the song it's it, it it's unbelievable you know just the, the mastery and the ability to pull that off without these sort of uh gestational phrases i would call them you know these these tension building figures oh yeah with the intertwined too it's kind of like that the thing that i like there wasn't uh there wasn't so much a developmental thing happening in the part I sampled as just like four huge riffs mm-hmm. that were kind of like worth hanging out in on their own, right? Each one kind of, but somehow they're getting from each is throwing into the next in a very necessary way. It doesn't, um, I suppose the general structure on intertwined was something like uh, crushing riff more abstract riff different crushing riff more dissonant and then like you get into the sort of organ heavy kind of big uh big release riff but they were they're all important and uh they move through them at quite a clip without sounding uh scattered yeah yeah it's uh i think it's really impressive just how and I'll get to this more on my my final sample, but the the ability of this band at this point in their career to guide the listener emotionally through exactly what they want them to experience at a a kind of incredible pace, you know the the tremendous swings between triumph and sorrow uh, that can happen so quickly across this whole album are you know there's very little music i've heard that that is able to do that as cleanly and as effectively and stick the landing every single time um so we had very different reactions to that the big riff at the beginning of the sample that might be worth uh yeah sure with the audience um when i first heard that my uh you know the 
you know, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I was like, whoa, that's like a rather, rather indulgent pop hook. That's uh that's almost, um, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's sound, it's very soundtracky, right? Mm. And, um, uh, very, it, it's close to a lot of trope melodies. Um, it's sort of, sort of Lord of the Rings soundtracky. Right, like yeah. big moment at the end of Lord of the Rings, and I had this moment like, "Oh God, am I trying? Am I trying to be convinced of an emotion?" Um, but and that hit that moment hit you really hard. Oh yeah, that was that was huge. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a little bit more primed for it just because I mm-hmm. listened to so much Funeral Doom. Um, oh but yeah, that was. You see, for me, the first couple tracks like Kala, Kala is great. <laughs> Um, the intertwined is a little bit more abstract mm-hmm. and I like the kind of wandering, shifting mood in it. Mm-hmm. And then for me, the March of the Four was the first time where it's like, it's this incredible release. It was almost like well, the first two tracks were building tension for that moment for me. Well, you know, so when it got, when as this song moved and then built back to that crest again at the end, I, uh, right, this sort of, uh, it's they they just hang on it more towards the end of the track and really just like make that melody sing and i start to realize okay at this point it's being repeated with the sort of gravity and uh um kind of focus that characterized stormcrow fleet uh that made me realize oh this is like they're they're fully this that that wasn't a hook this is like the uh this is this is the point of the song and it carries weight uh mm. and the, you know the re- the repetitions accumulated behind it and gave it more power and i think um and i i think it just made me change my optic too where i was like okay they really they they sort of they're in control of what's happening here like they must know that the orchestral arrangement on this track the way these are harmonized sounds more like pop arrangements right and i mean mm. using pop very very loosely here to say like things in rock music things and more i don't know this could be like a like things in music that the public at large would understand you know yeah i mean like uh scott that scott walker song about ingmar bergman which i'm sure these guys like um but uh um just yeah big big orchestral arrangements um and uh it's but like they um so I think I, I figured it out on this. Right? I was like, okay, this is just how they want us to listen to the album, and um, and then it, it it just is a really affecting melody. And I think mm-hmm. I think at that point, like I bought it, and then I was like instantly like, oh, this is the best track on the record so far. Yeah. And when I got to the end, I still thought it's the best track on the record. Well, I think um, <clears throat> I think that a lot of this relates to what I was talking about—that accusation oh. of oh, you know. Skepticism has slipped into, uh, you know, like regular kind of romantic funeral doom or doom death. And, you know, my, my response to that is, oh, so you mean that they're adopting influences from stuff like uh, Catatonia or Amorphous or Paradise Lost? You mean bands that they were fucking contemporaries of? 
during their mm-hmm. prime. Because everyone seems to forget that Skepticism has been a band since 1991. Stormcrow Fleet came out in 95, but their very first release, their, their single, Towards My End, that was 92. Like, this is not a band... God, Jesus Christ. The, the arrogance of people suggesting that Skepticism, of all bands, is a band grasping for straws at, like, more popular bands is insane. All like the uh. development of Peaceful Doom Death was concurrent with this band coming up. You know? So really I think they're reaching back probably to a lot of the same things they were listening to from the very beginning. They're just approaching I was gonna... it in a different way. Yeah. And uh, like and yeah, and to things that uh I mean when I try to think of like the you know, some of like what I meant by like a poppy harmony. I'm thinking like right on on the on the strings as the guitars climb down the progression. Um, that could be in like a chameleon song, like any number of kind of like post punky '80s acts. Um, like it has that kind of eerie intermediate mood. It's, I, I don't know, yeah, it's it's not, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't sound like Catatonia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not, but I, I, I see what they mean. It's like, okay, you've got these more, it's it's riffier, yes. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the band is riffier now, but that's not, uh, well, I, I guess I just, I, 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 I resent the implication that that's some sort of, like, cop-out on the band's right. part after they've been around for 30 goddamn years. Right, no, I think that's what, I think this track made me figure, like, yeah, made me figure, okay, they, they simply are playing a very different kind of music from the kind of music I thought they were going to be playing, and uh, once I recalibrated uh, this this album, makes a lot of sense, and is gets about, uh, you know, uh, as much profundity out of gestures like that as you possibly can. Hmm. Um Anyway, so, so your next sample. <laughs> oh, you know, the other thing, the other reason you were probably primed for that to hit you big is that you probably saw the title. Oh. You were probably like, oh shit, it's the March song. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, definitely. Like, uh, the March songs always have ex- excess emotional mm-hmm. weight within mm-hmm. their albums. So, uh, this is, uh,. What I'm wondering about this sample, this is, I guess this is another black metal adjacent thing, in a way, uh, but in a way that's very unlike Stormcrow Fleet, uh, and really unlike anything I expected from this band, and what I want to hear from you is, uh, is this, uh, did they ever do something like this before? So this Mm -hmm. is the passage. Oh, and the sample, the sample comes on after about a minute and 20 we're starting about a minute and 20 seconds in and up till this point it's all been building uh tension building lead guitar in this vein
that's pretty evil. Yeah, that's uh, that's some of the like grimmest stuff that skepticism's ever done. I mean, that's almost a breakdown. Uh, sort of trudges a little more, but uh, um, the uh, yeah, what I'm reminded so like opening with that you know like a minute and over almost two minutes of sort of like uh like you know well it's it's tuned too low to be needling exactly but sort of uh you know sort of sort of keening sharp uh dissonant trem right sort of uh hall of the mountain king trem for over well over a minute and a half is it's basically their sort of uh uh, you know, I am the Black Wizards or Jesus Toad intro. This track, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, um, well, and, the question is: Is this um, kind of referenced elsewhere in the discography? Yeah, uh, to a degree, this is a really heightened version of it. But actually, this reaches way, way back. Um, this reaches back to uh, the band's first single, uh, "Towards mm. My End." Uh, it was a little two-track, seven-inch. Uh, very few people have actually bothered to go back and listen to it. But at that phase, Skepticism was more of a death metal band. Um, I was... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Go, go, well, I was, the other things I was thinking of as I listened to it this time more, right? It, it sounds very... It sounds like before the black metal, death metal branching. Uh, and it sounds mm-hmm. like the Finnish death metal bands like Demigod and Sentenced. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, so originally, skepticism. Uh, obviously, that first seven inches, it's very strange. It's very mm-hmm. unformed. Um, it's fascinating music, but I'm not going to say that it's something I would ever regularly listen to. But what mm-hmm. it really is is like a a very strange streak of Scandinavian death metal with a big. There's there's a hint at what skepticism would later do. Um, in terms of like uh, their just the very strange harmonic ideas, and then the other thing that relates to that would be their third record, Pharmacon, um, which I would say is kind of their darkest record. Um, mm-hmm. it, it kind of uh, it's it's their most abstract. I'd say it's their most difficult record in the discography. It takes a lot of listens to really sink in, and then. It starts to gel together, but rarely across Pharmacon will you find anything that has the sort of like triumphant notes um, that mm-hmm. we're used to from other skepticism records, or not, and really not a lot of like regular kind of sad stuff either. It's just kind of gloomy and murky and introspective. It's really fascinating. Um, so this is precedented, but I think there's a lot of ideas on this record that are. Uh, relating to ideas from earlier in the discography, but all of them have been pushed to their limits. All of them yeah, have been just heightened kind, in a really dramatic way. Kind, kind of distilled, like, hey, what if we did something like the first 7-inch, but, like, with everything we've learned since? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and that's, and that's kind of a theory of mine about this record, is yeah. I think that each song is relating to a different part of the discography. You know, this is oh, almost like... that. Uh, yeah, interesting. I think, I think each one of these tracks is referential to a different period of the band. Um, 
So it's like a, so Kala. I think I think that's a play off the first track from Alloy. The intertwined is Stormcrow Fleet. The March of the Four is, uh, you know, it's it's an expansion on the March sequence. So that reflects back on Lead and Aether. Uh, Passage is more Pharmacon, etc. You know. Well, that's a. Um, these are some um, highly unsubstantiated skepticism conspiracy theories. <laughs> I, so, well, you know, skepticism is the no, kind of man that would do that. You know, no, uh, no, this, uh, no, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, and um, the, uh, I'm glad you know a lot about this. Like shit, you know a lot about this band. <laughs> yeah, I've spent a lot. Death metal guy. I hate to say it, but I'm impressed. <laughs> Death metal guy, or in some circles, the doom metal guy. <laughs> yes, I suppose so. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, yeah, this is just this is just my take on it. I mean, Skepticism's an interesting band because they've never really something has changed relatively recently for Skepticism, which is like since the last full length record ordeal, they've become much more active publicly. Um, there was a, a sort of a short documentary oh. on the band that someone filmed. Uh, you know, like a 30-minute a documentary talking to all the guys, just a local guy from Finland, I assume. And But Skepticism have almost never done interviews, never done any sort of public appearances. I think they've probably done less than, certainly less than 100, possibly less than 50 shows ever. Um, they've always been very private, but now they're starting to come out a little bit more. Um and I could see yeah, this I saw being inter- related to it. I saw an interview with them, like, sitting at a picnic table in the middle of a festival. Yeah, like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's very strange for skepticism. And they were in their full, you know, they were in their full tuxedos, uh, and um, they, they were very sort of chill and matter-of-fact. There was no, uh, it was very... Um, yeah, there's no they were not whatsoever yeah they were they were not trying to be they simply were in their tuxedos they were not trying to they were not in a grand artiste mode nor were they attempting to sell you on what sort of fun regular guys they were it was just very it was as if they'd been doing interviews like that the whole time and it was <laughs> surprising and it was like surprisingly open yeah it's uh, uh it's the uh, most finished thing possible Yes, there wasn't, oh, you know, there wasn't anything, yeah, there was no, uh, no, no insecurity or pretense of any kind. Um, uh, mm-hmm. and, yeah, um, that's pretty cool. something I've always respected about them a lot. Um, but to, to wrap things up, uh, my final sample, it's coming off the final track of the record, uh, The Swan and the Raven, which in this case is probably referential to Pharmacon's The Raven and the Backward Funeral. Uh, so maybe they're starting a new sequence here of related tracks. Also um, to the fleet of fucking storm crows. Yeah, and there's been there's been several references to crows and ravens, and I I, I bet. Oh, they there's the gallant crow also. There's the gallant crow. Uh, I believe there's another crow song, uh, but that's just escaping my memory now. Um, but this is gonna be kind of like what you heard on uh, the March of the Four, and just again, let's just look at the mastery of shifting moods uh, that this band has. Mm-hmm. 
so yeah, it's like I, I said, you know, so much of this record is two moments reflecting each other forever. Sorrow and triumph and sorrow and triumph and uh, finding the elements of each in each other. You know, this this perpetual waltz of these two ideas of, uh, I mean, kind of a, an odd comparison, but imagine kind of a, a bro-y, tough, hardcore record where it's about struggle and it's about triumph over it. This, this endless repeating cycle, you know, the eternal recurrence of warfare within a person. Um, and skepticism obviously goes about that idea in a very different way, but it feels like... It feels like so much of skepticism's music is based on these infinite cycles. Like uh, yeah. in, on, on Stormcrow Fleet, no song is just a song. It is uh, every song on Stormcrow Fleet is ten minutes and then an invisible eternity around it, stretching in both directions. Um, That's kind of like the Hate Forest effect. Yeah, yeah, or or Forest or any great black or doom metal band, really. Did- this is, uh, I, yeah, I see what you mean about the sort of all, you know, you could see the, well, you the, you know, what you say about the intertwinedness, right? I mean, I could really hear that passage as a single, extremely sustained mood. Uh, but if you wanted to divide it into triumph and sorrow, right, you could basically take, uh, there's the, uh, bum, bum, bum. Bah, bah, right that is maybe first sorrowful and then there's this sort of uh, arpeggiated build um and then when the thing that sounded sorrowful before hits again it sounds more like a big powerful release uh so it sounds tr- there's like um uh constant contextual inversions between what sounds like a more of a falling off and what sounds more like rising here um yeah i mean and there's a like a big chunk of that sample is dominated by a single melodic theme on the guitar that is played triumphantly once and then slowed down deliberately changing the entire context of it and giving it that sorrowful quality yeah, this this may actually be my favorite song on the record. I don't know. I'll have to go back and find out. But that was fucking awesome. Um, and you know, this as far as things this connects to, I think this connects to a specific song also, which is the rising of the flames on Stormcrow Fleet. Yeah. Uh, um, I think which I it, think in a way, everything in their discography does. Hi, this is Taylor from Crushing the Scepter, and you're listening to Terminus Podcast. All right, and we are back with Our Locks, uh, Pierre Brule, uh, out on Ladlow, Lactors de l'Ombre. Um, so, you know, we, we always do this thing. It's like, oh, I bring two records. Black Milk Guy brings two records. I just happened to catch this one coming up before he did. I really don't own this one. The Black Metal Guy is the one who has all the background knowledge for our lock. So you you go ahead, man. You uh, you tell us the uh, kind of relevant historical information here. Well, well thanks, bud. Uh, this is a band I've tr- mentioned on the show basically as much as I can because... Uh, 
I feel like they are they're they're the the fathers of the chivalric style of French black metal that we talk about. Um, uh, that has you know um, come to fruition lately in bands like uh, Veillemont on uh, the Antic label. Uh, this year we've also reviewed the uh, Passeisma record, which is a strong. Uh, you know, very strong entry in that style. Uh, to some extent, the um, Anternos, also an antique band. Um, uh, a set, uh, a kind of like a, punkier take on it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, punky, but still pretty medievally. Uh, and, you know, um, the, I think the other really big name in this style, uh, not connected to antique, would be a Sunopfer, which is, uh, mm-hmm. we, get, uh, we mentioned frequently as an example of a drummer band. That is an extremely riffy band where you can tell that the riffs are still being driven by the drums because the guy's a drummer, um, uh, like uh, as his first instrument. Um, but uh, those Veamans and Sunopfer, I think, have gotten a lot of the press, uh, at least overseas. Um, in part because Our Lock had a long period of uh, inactivity. So basically, uh, Arlac's first full length was A la Croisée de Vent in 2008. And then, uh, the, I actually haven't heard that one. Uh, I know them from La Cité de Vent in 2010. Uh, and then they spent about eight years off, uh, returning only with L'Esprit de Vent in 2018. And so in that time, a lot of these other bands emerged. Uh, and... Um, by the time they came out, they were more like fellow, you know, one band among many in a field that they had kind of helped clear the way for. for. Uh, and, um, yeah, so what's what's the deal with them? Well, uh, so Our Lock is a sort of adaptation of the uh, the name Auriac, which is their, their hometown, but it's, it's made to sound more like the native language, the sort of pre-French or quasi-French native language of the region, uh, Occitan, or the uh, Languedoc. That means language of Auc, the province, the region. Uh, um, and uh, that's, the, the name is something like Orlac. But uh, that's, that's not any fancy knowledge on my part. That's Metal Archives. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but I can give you some fancy knowledge in the form of... Uh, the history of the Occitan region, which is uh, this, you know, before the modern nation state, you know, you know, the paradigmatic modern nation states are, you know, are, well, France really, as in some sense, had a more coherent idea and identity than Germany did earlier. Uh, but even so, uh, you know, France in many ways was a political project and it was assembled from different regions um, by the stitched together by the monarchy and then, you know, in the 19th century. Uh, by the sort of the, the emerging state uh, and um, or emerging sort of democratic state uh, and the uh, or I should say Republican who knows you know it, the, the government changed a lot anyway point being France is a compound of regions that uh, predate you know predate anything like the modern idea of it uh, and one of them was this southern re- the, you know the Occitan region in southern France, and also extends down into Spain. Uh, and this was the country of the troubadours, who were uh, not just sort of, uh, I don't know, bard class characters, but also knight class characters. That is, they were mostly uh, nobles who 
composed, you know, uh, composed poetry, right? Where the sort of the poetry and the music were inseparable from each other. Um, then, in, you know, uh, the innovations there were inspiring to, I don't know, to Dante and to all sorts of waves of poetry afterward. Uh, and the region was associated with um, the for one of the uh, largest intra-European crusades, which was the uh, Albigensian Crusade uh, against heretics in the province. Uh, these are referred to sometimes as the uh, Cathars or the Albigeois. Um, and there is a long-standing uh, suspicion, right, that what happened here was not so much a Christian heresy as a survival, maybe, uh, you know, a crypto-Christian survival uh, or a, a crypto-pagan survival of uh, an older religion in this region maybe blended with Christianity and sort of encoded in the songs of some of the troubadours. Uh, and so there's something very black metal about this region, obviously. And, you know, it was black metal enough, apparently, that the medieval church decided it had to be crusaded. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so this is, so there's a long, pretty cool history in this region. Um, and they're tapping into that. Uh, We've already played on this show a song that taps directly into that history, uh, Saint Flore, La Cité de Vent. Uh, so we played it on an interlude. So I thought instead, let's get a sense of this band's core sound by checking out uh, something from L'Esprit de Vent. Uh, they had about, with the eight years off, they had a lot of time to write songs. And this is their masterpiece, and I would say maybe like the premier record in this style. But, uh, Here's a sample from one of the later tracks on it, uh, Laura, uh, Laura Evanguda. Did you uh, you notice that that one part that massive fucking mountain of a riff? <laughs> oh, you mean all of them? 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I especially like the one that sounds very piratey towards the end. The one that, yeah, it's got a folk melody. Yeah. Uh, yeah so um the cool thing is the fact that i can sing that there isn't just because i spend way too much try time trying to hum riffs on terminus it's because it's written for guitar like a melody that could be sung yeah i could even imagine a crowd of drunk french people in a football stadium chanting that um mm-hmm. It sounds like it's, who knows, maybe it's sourced from a folk song, but I think it's just a really huge melody. Uh, And they've made it repeat, even though it turns around like it should maybe go into like a a verse or another part of the song, they've managed to make it repeat like a riff. The other mastery of the arrangement there is that they do a, uh, I don't know, the whole riff has this kind of like rise, fall thing, peak valley uh each one of those um the riff rolls in on a slowdown right it's sort of like like i don't know it's not like half time it just comes out of blast into sort of like rolling uh steep deceleration uh then just revs up into a blast after one rep they escalate the blast and then they go back into the rolling mid-tempo feel at the end so it's like like kind of the opposite or just a very different way from how people would normally structure a chorus. Uh, but um, yeah, that's you can you can see why I like this band, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that so that record uh, ruled. Um, I was really stoked about this record when I heard it coming out. I have to say, uh, I am a little bit disappointed, uh, which is. A hard thing for me to say, so frankly, about a band that I am deeply invested in. Uh, so um, I suspect it's a case of, uh, you know, um, you know, r- uh, trying to write a follow-up album as soon as you can, right? Yeah. Uh, um, but the mood here is uh, the the songwriting is different and the mood is quite different. How how did it hit you? Well, you know, for me, it's kind of a, it's kind of a strange case, just because uh, it's sort of like when we did that uh, that bonus episode uh, about uh, incantations onward to Golgotha, where mm-hmm. Y- mm-hmm. you talked about the issue about uh, you know having not heard it before, but having heard so many of the things that it's influenced and uh, so many of the various threads that were picked up from it, it's kind of weird going back to the origin. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a feeling that I got on this record. It's like, oh, okay, so this is basically the center of this style that I really like, but I haven't heard the original. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least not in any substantial measure. You know, I've heard a song mm-hmm. here and there. Um, it's, you see, I don't really have enough knowledge to be disappointed or to be elated, but I do get. I did get the feeling while listening to it. I felt like this probably wasn't what was expected from this band because the way this scans to me is not really so much. I I mean, it is kind of by default, a chivalric French black metal record, but the things that I kept hearing across it were a lot closer to like melodic death metal 
a lot of the time. Or like a kind of old cradle of filth riff patterns. A lot of which are enjoyable, but it did feel all the way through that there was something missing, some sort of component. Um, and I think that maybe it would be a little bit more forgivable if it was like, you know, another band's debut record or something, which might be unfair on my part. But I'm just saying, you know, for a band like Our Lock with this kind of legacy behind them and, you know, with the, you know, with the recommendation of somebody that I respect a lot like you, I didn't get yeah. the sense. I got the sense that it's like I wasn't missing something that you probably had misgivings about this, too, you know? Yeah, 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 for sure. No, we talked about that before the show. And, uh, yeah, no, it does not... It is notably, in several ways, quite quite different from what I was expecting. Um, uh, so, let's try... Let, I'll try to zero in on that a little more. Uh, um, this is the first... Uh, this is the first track on the record, and honestly, it, it kind of threw me for a loop, and the loop kind of continued until, like, the last couple tracks. Uh, and uh, this, I think the record is about a volcano, but I can't make out whether the art it's is a... very odd. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of, uh, well, it's cool art, and it's probably done by the same person who did the cover to L'Esprit de Vent, which has an incredible cover. I should, should buy it physically still. Uh... But um, it's hard to make out what it has to do with the music. I, it it uh, the so this track is called uh, "La Colère du Volcan," which is something like "The Wrath of the Volcano," uh, but it does not sound very volcanic.
Man, that was slow. That was weird. That was... Yeah. I definitely got the sense of a... I mean, maybe this is unfair without the background knowledge, but the sense of a band imitating themselves. And not even themselves, because their old stuff doesn't sound like that. It has, it has moments. So what's crazy about this is that uh, the mood of... Um, melancholy and i'm using that term in the strong sense not just to mean sort of sad or mournful or inflected with emotional pain but this kind of like halfway emotion where you know sort of like the classic example of melancholy is like a a attraction to something that's gone but it can't be the the longing can't be shaken and you're kind of uh in this emotional limbo uh, mm -hmm. the chords are, they're sort of, they're not despairing. They're just kind of irresolute. It's um, not there. Yeah. They sort of, and it's just strummy. It's, you know, uh, strum the dolorous minor chord progression, which, uh, puts them much more in the realm of things that people would, as a cliche, sometimes an unfair one associate with French black metal. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's, um, you know, yeah, basically we start with a blast buildup, uh, which even that is kind of already hanging out in this kind of uh, melancholy minor territory. And then just drop into this, uh, you know, um, slowly strummed chords. Uh, and the, yeah, the chords, yeah, they have this kind of... Um, The remarkable thing about our lock before is the searing clarity of every idea. Mm -hmm. uh, you heard just that stream of rolling melody in Laura as Vanguda, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, da, da, da. and it does, it's not because it's all focused on leads. I mean, the remarkable thing is that almost all of those riffs are based on dense harmonies. But the, the, they're sort of melodies that are played as chords and therefore have their own close following harmony with them. Uh, and um, their grasp for those kinds of ideas is unmatched. And it goes with this mood that occasionally turns towards melon, towards like, I mean, more, you know, mournfulness, occasionally becomes sorrowful or tense or whatever, but is pretty much always generally just affirmative and noble. Uh, and has a lot of, you know, masculine forward moving. Um, mm -hmm. This is uh, more sort of uh, anemic, romantic lamenting. Uh, yeah, yeah it, this, it, I mean, this feels like a case of a, I mean, this, again, kind of grasping here, but this feels like a band that it's like, oh, we want to mature. We want mm -hmm. to go a little bit more internal, a little bit more intellectual, but they don't realize mm -hmm. that the turns that they're making... Being to be intellectual better... sucks. <laughs> well, yes, that. <laughs> and that the turns that they're taking to do that just bring it closer to very normal music. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, also just, I think the point... I thought of a clearer way to say what I was just saying before about the chords. It's like, you can just hear the difference between the tight sort of tremolo cording that they use 
And then those big, like, four or five string strummed things that are kind of close to bar chords, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. instead of those, and you can make versions of those that are, you could do chords like that that are powerful in all sorts of ways and have nuance in them. But here it's almost like the different tones, the different intervals are sort of interfering with each other to come out in this kind of halfway zone. Bands that do something like that kind of well are the Dutch. Mm, yeah, yeah. They have that weird, moody, gray atmosphere. Yeah, but then that's like where they, that's their primary material almost for some of them. Uh, but here, yeah, here it's just, here it is, uh, seems like noise in the signal of the, you know, sort of uh, something that is not this band's uh, native territory. And it, what a strange compositional move to just like power in on the blasts and then drop into that section, which, and as, as you're saying, I think maybe it is an attempt to sort of, you know, take a different path abruptly, but it doesn't, it's a, I don't think it lands for either of us. No, it doesn't. Well, so let me get to one of my samples. Uh, so this is where we're going to explore kind of like my angle on the whole thing, which is that this record, I mean, even just based off the limited amount of our lock I've heard before, this record seems really substantially influenced by mellow death and power metal and like kind of old cradle of filth. And specifically what I'm talking about are these uh, kind of gestural riffs that are based around um, simple kind of classical stem melodies that just get worked around the fretboard. Uh, an obvious example. Oh, go ahead. You've been talking about simple classical stem melodies getting worked around the fretboard a lot lately. How is this different from Lymphatic Phlegm? Uh, well, one, Lymphatic Phlegm is really cool. Um, okay, yes. So yeah, different, totally different sound. But totally what I mean is like, sound. Yeah. What, what do you mean about it here? Yeah. So what I mean about it here is, okay, so what you're about to hear is a four-note melody that gets worked around the fretboard in a few different ways and then ends in a flourish. The obvious comparison that everyone's going to be familiar with is going to be the opening riff to Funeral in Carpathia on Dusk and Her Embrace by Cradle of Filth. Um, and that's fine. Um, I don't mind that kind of riff writing, but it comes up a lot on this record. Like, uh, what you're about to hear is one of the primary kind of riff techniques and uh, like I said, I don't necessarily mind it. And I think it's kind of cool, the idea of using that as a building block. But I do wonder if this is the direction the band wants to take, given their history of, like, much more elaborate harmonic language. So this is a sample off the second track, uh, uh, Al Travers de Nos Chris, something like that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, just listen to that Melodeth figure riff. And then when we get to the end of it, I'll talk about what makes it less useful in this situation than in some other bands.
Yeah, it's kind of like a bee doo ba doo bee doo ba doo bee doo ba doo ba doo bee doo ba doo ba doo. Just change that root note, and then I mean the overall effect you get is something akin to like a like a sargeist riff or something where it's just like oh just change the root note and keep doing that pattern of the high melody uh, it's like it's like it's and the not... chords underneath it are like rhythm chording that is uh firing well below this band's uh capacity yeah it's a, there there's something about this like especially just from the samples you've showed me of older stuff it's like it really feels like the band's kind of slumming it on this like it's like we know they can operate at a much higher level. And the thing is, there's like, there's bands where that kind of riff really would have a ton of weight, but it's all based on mm-hmm. context. There's mm-hmm. something about this record that feels like it's the band operating at 65%, you know? Yeah. Like, and, uh, it's. I, and I really could hear the cradle. Of, I don't even know cradle that well, but I could. As soon as you pointed it out to me, I was like, "Oh yeah, that cradle of filth," or "Yeah, the Sargeist thing." And even the, the galloping riff following it works on the same principle, right? Right. I mean, I like that one more just because it has more like more of a dynamic rhythm. But no, it does. It's got more the same idea. It's got more of a shape, but it's basically the same vertical idea stretched heart more stretched out more made a little more like a heavy metal riff uh and they're doing the same move the root note under it like duh 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 which we all know is a great progression but you you know they're uh you know different different ways to do that uh yeah yeah man yeah i've yeah, even that part at the end, right? They started to get some melodic clarity towards the end with that. But it still had this, the, the last lick, but it had this still kind of like crestfallen vibe. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, uh. Why do you sound so sad, guys? Like, what's up? <laughs> what happened? Uh, maybe it's being sad about a volcano blowing up, you know? But, like, <laughs> I don't... I looked I looked up volcano south of France and I didn't find much except an island volcano that went off in the uh, 1830s. Um, so there must be some backstory here that we don't understand. <laughs> Something like that. So, so uh, this is I, I perked up towards the end of the record. Uh, it is. I, d- I don't think it's, you know, I still, it, it is not, um, you know, I, I, it wasn't jaw-dropping, but it did sound much more like the same band. Uh, mm-hmm. In particular, uh, La Guerre de, de Esclope, uh, which means something like War of the Slaves, uh, is a, um, again, there's like regional history stuff that must be just somewhere, but there's, there there's no, there's no interview for it yet. Uh but um, this one sounds more like something you could have heard off uh, La Cité des Vents, where there's this kind of more immediate influence from North Second Wave. Uh, so we will uh, check this out. This one is, th- this one's fun.
towards the end of a record that hangs out pretty consistently in this sort of uh, melancholy epic kind of territory. Uh, that kind of uh, tightness and drive is a uh, welcome change. Uh, yeah, it's it's got more of a center to it. Yeah, it's um, yeah, and there you get. I, I've read in an interview that this band, um, you know, they're they're not that. You know, you could attempt to trace a genealogy of this sort of more nightly style back to stuff that has, I don't know, back to like Hirolorn and Senor Voland and stuff. But uh, apparently this band was not very influenced by French black metal. They said they mostly liked Norwegian stuff, maybe, I don't know, maybe Swedish stuff and like Iron Maiden. And that I think the vocalist was into DSBM. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and you can hear all those things coming together in various ways. Uh here but um so this has some of that more sort of let's say undigested or immediate uh scandinavian influence um and you know those those are relatively standard kind of like ripping you know ripping motorhead second wave riff right but i was just gonna the, say the, black metal motorhead stuff yeah <laughs> Yeah, just just the fact that they're such good, so good technically, I feel like they're more excited about playing this part, and so their ability to like fill in the sonic space with these little bends and embellishments that it comes to the fore more. Um, um, yeah, uh, you know, I, I get that. I mean, what you're saying is kind of what we've been saying through this whole review. Mm -hmm. This is a band that we know is capable of more, so. Mm -hmm. Why doesn't it come through here? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I, I think the, the the mood changes in the last couple tracks, and I wonder if there wasn't a, uh, I wonder if there wasn't a good sort of change of mood here. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe there was an album in these. Il est passé le monde, ce n'était que 
And we are back from a break featuring even more rants. Uh, there's been a lot of good sort of off-air Terminus rant content tonight. Um, <laughs> but uh, we're, we're back from that with some uh, ranting and raving Finnish black metal courtesy of the Angry Hermits and How to Cameo. This is Pimaden Kosketus out on the uh, International Clearinghouse for uh, Finnic black metal, uh, Purity Through Fire. Uh so, How to Cameo is probably not a uh, household name, even if you're somewhat into Finnish black metal, because it is a project that hasn't been uh, hasn't been around for some time. Kind of like, uh, you know, both. I guess that's a common thread with the skepticism and with our lock. Uh, you know, long long intervals between recordings. Uh, but um. This was my uh, this was my one of my gateways into Finnish black metal, uh, alongside Witzhaus and Sielenvoholman uh, back in probably like you know 2014 15. Uh, and what was you know I had uh, come up as a sort of uh, Norse Swedish purist and uh, come of age in a time when it was very fashionable to like Satanic Warmaster and shit talk Emperor, whereas I liked Emperor and shit talked Satanic Warmaster. Ha! Um, now, of course, it's basically... <laughs> I was about to say, oh, how the tables have turned. <laughs> yeah, well, now it's, um, exactly, uh, you know, um, now sort of, uh, you know, like, also now it's obvious that Satanic Warmaster is one of its primary influences is Emperor, I think. I mean, I think, I think he's, I think Werewolf has made that abundantly clear in the, in the, you know, angles he's pursued on that project since... Uh, but, um, but yeah, so it was, uh, I was, you know, Satanic Warmaster got identified with this highly melodic style and, uh, you know, um, I, for whatever reason, thought I was more just invested in this, you know, dissonant grinding Norse stuff, neglecting that like half of Satanic Warmaster is dissonant grinding power chords. Anyway, these bands, Witzhaus uh, has the classic Finnish chording, but is much sort of darker melodies and much kind of um, very long, elaborate folk-based melodies. Uh, Seelen and we already reviewed, sort of stompy, angry, sort of like uh, nasty kick-in-the-teeth black metal. Uh, and How to Cameo is, uh, really sounds in some ways more Norwegian than Finnish. Uh, but what's very Finnish about it is the fact that it has been um, the essentials of the Norwegian sound have been it, the Norwegian sound has been boiled back down to some essential characteristics delivered in highly compressed kind of alternating song structures. Uh, and you know, back when their first two records came out in 2013 and 2014, back to back, there was virtually no other modern stuff that sounded like this. That is sort of. Uh, rooted in the second wave, uh, but with a kind of, uh, without some sort of retro gimmick to it. Just a powerful forward production. Mm -hmm. um, and then they went away for uh, a long time. And I think that's that long silence is probably because the members are busy with other stuff. You know, all the Finns are in a bunch of bands. Uh, the vocalist Vritron is in White Death, uh, and he's also in the Vritron Werewolf collaboration. That is the Werewolf of Satanic Warmaster, uh, which I think just released a record or something. Yeah, there was um, one earlier this year. Yeah, uh, and then um, 
Grim sixty six Grim six six six, the guitar the strings guy, is uh in the prolific Atmo Black Act, Kalman Kantaya. Um, and the drummer Lima is in bands like Azagal and Lath Spell Lath Spell, both of which are pretty established, but I haven't really followed. Anyway, point is this is a uh, a meeting of the minds that occurs uh, you know, when the stars are right. Um how does this record sound? Well, it sounds like how to cameo. Uh, so basically, um, the only change I can really detect is that the uh, um, uh, the melodies might air, in fact, more, uh, may, maybe less brash epic melody here, uh, and uh, more focus on s- sort of uh, spooky Norse stuff and. Um, the production is a little bit cleaned up, but thankfully very loud. Uh, what do you make of this one? Well, black metal guy, <laughs> I'm going to uh, I'm going to record a uh, disclaimer at one point for my opinions on all these uh, heavily second wave influenced nowadays records, which is, mm-hmm. you know, this obviously this isn't my thing but at this point I think I've gathered enough information about it to tell when it's good and when it's bad and how to come is good um this is not to me the most exciting music you know uh as far as like modern takes on second wave the obvious one is going to be Gendod um Mm -hmm. but Gendod has just like a a severe weirdness to them that really appeals to me um, how to Kamio is playing it a little bit closer to the core. However, it's obviously extremely respectable, rigorous black metal. Um, touching on something you said, the production is kind of odd on this record for the style. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'm going to get into that a little bit when it comes to my samples, but the guitar tone is very very kind of reverb and delayed out but like to a degree beyond you know even day mysteries um it's kind of strange kind of like it it ends up with those kind of glassy clean tones you know almost that like invisible synthesizer effect you get from some really blown out black metal guitar tone which is kind of interesting combined with the really kind of raw you know, just really aggressive barreling style of black metal on here. Um, And I think sometimes it's an advantage and sometimes it's a disadvantage. Um, So obviously this is a band that is heavily influenced by what we would expect. Uh, Dark Throne, Burzum, Early Emperor, I think is a big thing. You know, uh, EP and Split Era Emperor. Yeah, Um, Yeah. only only true Emperor. (laughs) We, we've already had that debate. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like how I'm the death metal guy and I'm the only true emperor guy. <laughs> but, um, uh, but there's also uh, touches of more modern stuff. Uh, there's some sort of Take type stuff, which is also related to Gendod. Which, you know, Take is not chronologically nowadays black metal, but you know what I mean. You know, it's uh, mm-hmm. reflecting kind of different ideas in it. Um, I think there was more of the Toke type stuff in the older stuff. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. yeah. I gotcha. I mean, I, it's definitely, there's parts of it where it's really distinct here. 
Um, mm. But really, what this is is kind of, at least to me, a a guided tour of Norwegian black metal circa '93. You know, it's <laughs> uh, it's interesting. You you know, you get to there's records like this where you can play the game of oh, which band to which riff. You know, and I think they're kind of celebrating that on this record, and that's that's totally fine. Like, uh, this is black metal for dedicated, rigorous black metal people. And, you know, regardless of, you know, my own taste, uh, I can respect that for what it is. Yeah, for sure. All right. So, um, yeah, let's, uh, how about some blast beats and screaming? This is, yeah, uh, Harheisen, Milan, uh, term, termlia. All right. Uh, uh, termlia. Yeah. There we go. You know I can't count higher than four. Uh, how many times did they repeat that? Oh, uh, the big lead riff. Do, I think that was do, do, do. Yeah, yeah. That okay, was it's they, just they, a they do. Yeah, they do four with one drum beat and backing chords, and then they shift it a little bit for the uh, second mm-hmm. half. Yeah, it's just a long riff because it's got two parts to it. Yeah, do 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 Yeah, so that is. Um, in a way, that's the biggest riff on the record. They just open with that. Like, that's, in terms of, like, massive hook riffs, they just lead with that. Is that a fair assessment? 
Uh, yeah, I, there's there's some stuff later on the record that's kind of similar, but that gesture is the mm-hmm. main kind of like big driving riff. Yeah. That's the big moon through the clouds part. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's uh, listening to it. Um, yeah, so first of all, like the amount of repetitions is very different from nowadays black metal, um, and I mean they. Usually, now that things have slipped more verse chorus, usually you repeat the big epic part maybe less than the verse riffs in some way, especially when it's that long, right? You might mm-hmm. you might go through like, you know, four reps or something. Um, that's like twice as long as the ear would expect it to be based on that. It's getting... Uh, and it really sustains its own weight. Like, there's no... Um, it doesn't need to go anywhere. Like, they could play it another eight times. Uh, and that's a pretty interesting idea. You know, that's th- there's a certain kind of songwriting skill that goes into that. We talk call it the infinite riff on the show, right? The sort of the thing that just turns back on itself and loops uh, indefinitely. That, that has this sort of self-contained power that's pretty cool. A thing... But this leads us to the production. Um, or, well... Real quick before I get to the production, um, stylistically, in terms of name that riff, it would seem like what they're doing is applying the Transylvanian hunger principle to mm-hmm. uh, an emperor riff. Yeah, I think that's something we both landed on listening to this, which is uh, a lot really heavy early emperor influence in terms of riff craft, but with a really chunky kind of raw structuring a la dark throne classic era yeah the 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 slow part before this sounded very authentically dark thronian too like fenris would have dressed the drums up more but something about the understatement there and the just sort of the trot on it was very fenris yeah um, i can see that yeah uh it's um yeah, and sort of the idea of, like, droning repetition. Again, people always associate that with the second wave, but in fact, the only band that did really Wall of Blast beats like that, the only record that's really like that is Transylvanian Hunger. Uh, so, um, you know, the occasional Burzum song. But, uh, yeah, so, so yeah, em- Dark Throne Hypnotic Repetition, Emperor, Grandiose, Minor Scale, uh, Sinister Castle Melodies. Um but the interesting thing, I realized another thing that really makes that big riff um, is the harmonizing guitar under it, which I hadn't noticed until I was listening to it this like second or third time. Um, that leads to production. The, 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 the guitar rhythm bass is really good. It's sort of playing against the chord changes in the... It's sort of playing against the shape of the arpeggios. Uh, and it actually has its own, it's not just root notes, it has its own independent thing. There's like, dun, 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 dun. It, it's sort of, there's a dun, 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 towards the end, a kind of cool flourish. It's very difficult to hear, but it's present under there, which affects the sound of the whole. Isn't it kind of weird that that's buried there? Yeah. Um, so the production on this record uh, well, what we're really specifically talking about is guitar tone. Um, mm-hmm. There's a, a kind of give and take happening. I like the way it uh, kind of spreads out 
the tremolo riffs and gives it this kind of haunting, um, mellifluous quality. But it doesn't really work as well in kind of the chunkier passages of this record. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it has a tendency to smooth out the ragged edges of the really nasty, kind of crunchy Celtic Frost Dark Throne riffs. Um, so it's like, uh, it, it's interesting. I, I'm wondering what prompted that decision for the band. Um, because it gives a, a sort of understated grandeur to a lot of the passages like the one that you sampled. But I, I feel like it, it takes some of the energy out of the uh, kind of mid-paced stompy stuff. Would you agree? Um... Yeah, and maybe also, like, yeah, it certainly works for the grandeur thing, but with the classic second wave stuff, the grand parts are also supposed to grind, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, If that second guitar, if the power chords there were boosted, it had more of the buzzsaw effect in the early Emperor guitars, and the meshing of those two riffs would... uh not just make it sound like graceful and lunar, but would make it, uh, I think, I think maybe a more powerful and dramatic riff. Uh, I, I like it might, it would right now, the strange thing about this record is even though these, these, every riff is written in the tradition of like, um, you know, maliciously violent second wave black metal. Uh, it's, it flows by in the way that's normative for nowadays black metal. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit too smooth for the yeah. really abrupt structures. And I think, yes. you know... Yes, the, I, old, I, I, the old How to Cameo was very much just like, this is fucking loud, it's fuzzy, there's like extra tone frying everywhere. This is also loud, but in a very different way that makes it more like continuum background listening no and yeah i agree and you know me saying this i'm not trying to blame the band for this because it's it's a very delicate tightrope to walk you know you're you're looking for something consistent across everything and you want the uh you want the tremolo riffs to have this kind of searing quality and you want the you know the crunchier kind of dark throne parts to have that rhythmic immediacy mm-hmm. and it's very difficult to get that with a simple kind of straightforward production job um i just think maybe they went a little bit too far in the direction of smoothness and mm-hmm. bringing it back to the center probably would have benefited this and made some of those kind of crunchy parts a little bit more exciting um so, real quick, let me get to another sample. Uh, this is going to be off the uh, the title track, Pimeden uh, Cosquetas. And uh, we're going to hear another one of these kind of like uh, tour ideas of the Norwegian scene. So, the first couple riffs are going to be kind of modernized interpretations of De Mysteries Dom Satanas phrases. And then they're going to spill very organically into a more triumphant kind of Take-style passage. And uh, this is going to be a good example of the production working really well to the benefit of this record. Smoothing out the transitions between some of these more aggressive 
uh, changes in, in style or mood and kind of piecing them together in a really nice hmm. way. things these guys are really good at is using just simple tricks of like drum variation and adding or removing vocals to get more juice out of the individual riffs because I, there's nothing complex on this record uh, these are all very simple straightforward riffs but uh, I think that sample is a good example of the production lending itself you know through that delay and reverb to kind of slip from one melodic idea into another in a way that feels more naturalistic than it might with a raw production. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's that's well described. I and I think when I said like the background background listening thing, um that's the negative side of the production that it can just mm-hmm. that music that's supposed to be very go for the throat can slip by too much, but the positive side is um Yes, it does help create a uniform sound despite the shifts between styles, as you said. It also, um, yeah, and it also makes it sort of uh, casually listenable in a way that is sometimes a good quality, right? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily mind the idea of really aggressive second wave stuff being kind of smooth and contiguous because i mean transylvanian hunger was like that i mean mm-hmm. everyone like we've said on the show multiple times everyone remembers transylvanian hunger from the first track and then they ignore all the way more aggressive dissonant stuff on the back side of that record um mm-hmm. but one of the things that makes that record work so well is that the production provides this continuous stream of sound mm-hmm. quality that evens out the, at times, really janky, really severe switches between riffs. And then here we have a band that's both, yeah, well, maybe not better, but a little bit more current in the style of 
melodic switches. Um, mm. And then they have production that accentuates that, you know, that provides this, you know, wonderful kind of tonal undercurrent to everything yeah. that you matches know, everything. I together. noticed a pretty. Su- I noticed you did a nice job of marking off the difference in those riffs. I actually noticed something in terms of the writing that smooths that over, too. So, mm-hmm. the first riff is very mayhemic. The second one, it's like... Mm-hmm. Okay, so that that those big swoops, uh, like, um, moving in these kind of half-steppy ways very mayhem but the da da dum that drop at the end that yeah. like broader interval that's a token thing yeah uh, i was gonna say it, that it takes, it's like it, they create a, a bridging the, riff between the styles exactly no and so like the opening of the riff already is like mayhem's mode of a kind of mournful riff you know more um like right um yeah da 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 i um but then when it drops to that da 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 to that thing at the end, it has a little more of the um, uh, emotional modulation into something, uh, uh, you know, uh, definitely still sad, but more like I mean, God, I as much as I heaped heaped derision on the term melancholy earlier, uh, melancholy in a better way. Than, than, than the stuff on the on the last record. Uh, yeah, there's um, a, there's an understated sophistication to the way these guys transition between dramatic ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, they they like to use a bridging riff that kind of combines styles, creates hybrid riffs that uh, you know provide this this nice kind of smoothing texture between the two. Um, but not in a way that sacrifices the quality of either. Yeah. Um, so, now we are on to... Uh, you know, um, this is a pretty straight-ahead record. Uh, it's So, in, in a lot of ways, the samples we pick are going to be pretty similar. But um, here's one with another kind of uh, quote-unquote simple but subtle trick that only sort of uh, masters and careful listeners of the style could pull off. Um, so this is uh, Lopun Ajan Alku. Uh, Lopun Ajan Alku, I don't know. Um, and uh, you're going to hear an inversion between which parts of the songs you'd expect to be prioritized.
So you'd usually, and we've already set up this expectation on this review, usually expect the mid-tempo parts to serve more as um, uh, sort of aggressive head-banging punctuation and, and the trem parts to carry focal point melodies. Uh, here, uh, I don't know about you, but um, the trem parts feel more like they're sort of customary procedures being run through. Uh, sort of like standardized runs that have this kind of intermediate between Mayhem and Toka kind of, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, y you know, sad sad vampire but kind of in the daylight mood um mm -hmm. uh you know vampire sad that the sun is coming up mood <laughs> but maybe also kind of excited because he's never seen the sun come up um and uh and it, but in the middle of that it drops to um the sort of the, the heavy corded part that drops out of the initial blast that's actually where the epic hook is that's where the sort of like powerful shade the shading of powerful dorian scale melody is that you know mm -hmm. occasionally will come in uh and it's rhythmically inflected like a dark throne stomp riff and then it seamlessly and that's the one that has sort of this, sort of this big rise uh and then we go to a more dissonant riff but it's got this flowing the, six eight flowing six eight drums under it and each of the things that you'd expect to be a jam and power chord are actually sort of like i think you referenced dark funeral somewhere in this review so i'm gonna say those sound kind of like dark funeral chords each one of them is like a bar chord kind of thing mm -hmm. uh and again more atmosphere in that second stomp riff than you'd expect uh and it just plays on each of those jumps from the root note happens in a place that would be uh, a little bit different from where convention would place them. Uh, yeah. So I, I get what you're saying. So yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Just the idea that it, yeah. you know, the, this is okay. So we're at this point close to thirty years on from the second wave. You know, the classic. Mm -hmm part of the second wave where the most important, so to speak, records came out. Um, and it's always good to find a band that, uh, that, that is not refusing modern techniques to create new spins on that sound. And I think these guys are really good at finding the places to be really rigorous and traditional and finding the places where they can play around with the style and the ideas a little bit. Obviously, this is a record that is designed to be, at least in a large part, worshipping the traditional second wave. But they're not leaving modern techniques behind while doing it. And certain ideas like you're talking about, like the inversion of expectations and the, the placement of these riffs and what is supposed to be the most significant, um, that's a cool thing to do. And really, if things were a little bit different back in 93, uh, you know, maybe these ideas would have happened. You know, all of this sounds like a possibility 
of the early 90s. Yeah. Know? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, it's kind of like that Gallows record. I think the thing that this is actually most similar to is the Gallows record we reviewed a while back. Oh, that's interesting. The Gallows record definitely goes for more of a uh, ripping, full-on attack, and it's a lot more riffy, right? I mean, the goal seems to have, rumor has it, that the goal was to get uh, 66 riffs onto the record. Um, uh, This is is definitely not like that, but both of them are full of nudges and winks to classic black metal artists, while also not while also really sounding kind of like they could have existed at the same time as those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, there's, yeah, so Giondod and the other one I would reference would be Hate Spirit, we reviewed the other week. Both those bands are carrying the second wave sound forward in different ways. Uh, in um, While being clearly their sense of how black metal is supposed to sound is completely rooted in the early and mid-90s, but they are developing from there rather than everything that's happened in between primarily whereas uh like um this this sounds like yeah it sounds like an alternate history pretty convincing alter like yeah thing that could have existed in that cultural space at that time yeah i definitely see that I mean, like gallo I mean gallows and this band could be seen as kind of sister bands you know gallows is focused on uh sort of early 2000s like recreation black metal it's like all right the old shit is over oh wait we do now what maybe i misremembered something about gallows maybe i'm thinking of another band we reviewed recently but um i i'm remembering the gallows specifically but what you 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 go into yeah. I think you you're right. It is supposed to sound like that early two thousands memories of second wave thing, which is not quite what I how I was characterizing it. So go go on to explain that. I I don't think you were mischaracterizing it. It's like Gallows is the sound of a memory of the second wave, in the mm-hmm. early to mid two thousands. You know, centered around bands like Avski, and you know Avski is a band that is clearly imitating the second wave um Mm -hmm. and then gallows in turn is imitating the imitation and after having spoken to the guys you know big fucking surprise um clearly that was the intent you know Mm -hmm. they they said that uh we were correct in our assumptions that it is supposed to be this almost sort of meta project, the idea of, you know, a, a memory of a memory, you know, this this game of telephone. How do you recreate old school black metal in the nowadays? Yeah. Um, yeah. For them, it was like what we thought true black metal was when we were growing up, which was not 1993. Yeah, absolutely. Now, these guys are attempting to be a little bit more, a little bit closer to the source to be a direct thread back versus this sort of, you know, abstract idea that Gallows has. But, you know, the goal is ultimately the same, to recreate something from times past. Um, And wonderful segue into my final sample. Mm -hmm. So uh, something I said up front, uh, a lot of this record, if you're a dedicated black metal guy, you know, not to be confused with the black metal guy, the ultimate authority on all black metal, um, is uh, playing the uh, 
which band is this riff from game? You know, or which band is this riff idea from, rather? Because there's there's no straight copying, obviously. Um, so let's go to Pimes Tuhoa Valon Luoman. Um, and we're going to have a really cool riff sequence. Uh, it's going to start with Take. And I'm... I, and we've got to have a discussion at one point. Am I attributing just everything to Take, or is there something more obvious I'm missing? You know, from the old school. Um, so we're going from Take to here's where it comes in early Dark Funeral, like Secrets of the Black Arts, like First Record and the self titled EP, and then into Dark Throne. And this is where you know, maybe some of the negatives of the production will come back because there's a really cool kind of ripping Dark Throne style riff, but it doesn't have quite the energy because it's so smoothed out with a guitar tone. But ultimately, this is a this is a pretty awesome part of the record, I think. probably hear what i mean um death metal guy keep rolling that dark throne riff yeah <laughs> 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 i know you'd be a sucker for that um okay so so you got that that big take riff which i'm starting to realize it, it feels like all those like take riffs are kind of connected to each other in a way, like they're all like playing around the same notes, like it's a uh, yeah. I think that's a fair point. It's a specific gesture uh, that's happening on this record, which is which is fine. Um, then you get into that yeah. kind of like dark funeral, like flattened out 
uh, mayhem style riff. Mm-hmm. But then you get to the Dark Throne riff at the end, and then the Dark Throne riff is cool. Just this like nasty kind of like Hellhammer style gestural riff of like basically two chords. Um, but the production that smooths everything out, which is so advantageous to the tremolo riffs is kind of a detriment to that because with that riff i mean just listening to it that stomp that intensity Mm -hmm. you really want that nasty fucking chainsaw quality chords grinding against chords you know yeah um it's i think the thing they're trying to capture here is the way that unlike one-dimensionally grinding or aggressive black metal guitar tone the early stuff like Dark Throne was resonant, right? You could hear the tones ringing and bending in the in the dungeon space. Uh, mm-hmm. And this certainly is a resonant sound, and you can hear cool overtones and stuff. Uh, but I know what you mean. It's, uh, yeah, the tone is sort of smoothing over the percussive aspect of the riff. Like, each... And in a minimalist riff like that, the rhythm really counts, right? Each of those, uh, it's kind of about rubbing people's face in the fact that he's playing the same note over and over again. That's the point of the riff. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, um, So, yeah, no, I mean, you know I'm never going to be against making a guitar tone, uh, you know, nastier. Um, (laughs) The, uh, I just, I want to say, here's a good, um, maybe one of the only places I can catch an anachronism on this record in terms of the actual note choice is at the end of the Dark Throne riff. Dark Throne would never finish that with a minor six, seven. Uh, the turnaround. I mean, but what an yeah. awesome way to finish it. Uh, no, yeah. Like, flatten that bathory into Dark Throne. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, no, that idea of just throwing the big epic, you know, uh, consonant riff idea into the dissonant riff is much more common nowadays as people try to find various ways to reconstruct and draw on that second wave stuff. Um, The funny thing is Dark Throne would have done that on Arctic Thunder, but they wouldn't have done it before. Hey all, this is Brandon from Cromlight, and you're listening to Terminus. And we are back from cackling hysterically to ourselves about the death metal guy's ankylosaurus joke, never mind, with a <laughs> review of a record that I did not expect to come so soon, the uh, follow-up to Glush's 2020 record, Heimwheel. This is Sylvan Coven, out on the band's own label, uh, Dravo Recordings, which I think basically also releases material by Glush and by Aorant, which is a full band that has the guy from Glush in it. Glush is a one-man thing. So, <clears throat> we've talked about Time Wheel on this show before. Uh, I think we played a... We, we sampled a track off it at some point, and I think I mentioned it on the year-end list for last year. It might have even snuck onto the list, I think, on my list. Uh, um, so this is a band from Siberia, and it brands itself, this project brands itself as atmospheric black metal. Uh, but before you run, listen 
Uh, it's uh, it's an unusual take on that. Um, the music is naturey in the way that you would expect sort of atmospheric black metal to be, but in a more in a, in a way that's more rooted in actual sort of uh, in a way that has a more spiritual grounding and a more sort of traditional grounding. Uh, the, the it's sort of based on a you know based on a Siberian shamanic approach to paganism. So perceiving a landscape animated by spirits, right? The river itself as kind of a a god or a spirit or the wind or the mountain or the trees. Uh, and uh, the cover of that record is worth mentioning because it evokes that beautifully. It's just, it's this sort of uh, swirling green world that has, you know, like a fox spirit and like the form of an old man playing a flute rising up to the river, stuff like that. Uh, and despite that kind of whimsical cover uh it's very powerful music and uh although the guys name checked stuff like wolves in the throne room the music really sounds like early droog and uh the blazebirth hall bands at times uh and this record uh and you know uh you you heard a little bit from time wheel right uh, yeah, I've heard a couple tracks off of it, uh, like that one that you sampled uh, mm -hmm. for an interlude mm -hmm. uh, back in the day. Now it's a it's a good record, from what I can mm -hmm. tell. Yeah, so it's, um, yeah, anything it is sort of the riffs uh, powerfully evoked phenomena in nature in a very immediate way, uh, and. Although it captured a lot, there was joy, playfulness, tenderness, uh, like a full-sided perception of nature. And it had all those things that we might associate with Atmo Black uh, in much more authentic and compelling versions than you usually get in the genre. Um, it also had moments of, uh, you know, like literal storm. Like there's a great song called Clouds that just, you know, suddenly the sky darkens at the end of the track. Right, I, I might throw a sample on here. Um, and those tendencies are all, I mean, you usually expect the follow-up to move in a softer direction or something. Uh, rather, like, all that stuff that set apart the first record from other things in the general area have been intensified. So the record of this is like, or the, the cover of this has this sort of like, you know, kind of, we'll just say the cover might signal uh, Atmo Black again, right? But feel free to mentally replace it with a uh, 19th century Slavic romantic landscape painting, a, uh, a bunch of pissed off Cossacks, or a nexus of rune embittered fang frost, because that's what you're going to get. Um, let's listen to your first sample. Okay. Unless well, uh, well I, you should well you no you should say your thoughts on this one first. I just uh, I just had some momentum there. Well, I, I like this record a lot. Um, it's interesting to hear the progression from what I've heard off Time Wheel onto this mm -hmm. because this strikes me as uh, at least to me much more aggressive, uh, much more raw and kind of like impacting 
black metal. Um, so, because the way I read Time Wheel, or at least what I've heard off it, was a, a sort of like, it's the great Atmo Black hope. You know, the mm-hmm. idea of, like, what if we took the conventions of Atmo Black, at least to some degree, and actually made good music out of them? <laughs> um, and Glush did that really well by doing basically stuff that was structured like Atmo Black but uh, had a really dynamic uh, harmonic language to it. Um, Something much closer to, you know, Russo-Ukrainian black metal proper than this sort of, like, abstract idea of atmospheric black metal that's emerged over the past few years, which is just atmospheric black metal as a genre is decoupled from music for the most part. Yeah, atmosphere um, black metal, like the way people talk about it on on the internet is so goddamn weird and has yeah. seemingly nothing to do with any actual scene. It's something that just exists on the internet. Um, but Glush steps in, takes a lot of those ideas and makes something actually good out of them. Um, but now on this record, we have something that's still reflective at least to a degree of that idea but it's really at least to my ears a much more pure and just like aggressive black metal record so uh let's listen to woodland waltz not to be confused with uh woodsman's walk off the uh robes of snow and uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah yeah uh, not to be uh, confused off the Robes of Snow and Moldyon split. Um, and uh, I'll talk about some of the influences that I really detect after we, uh, after we listen to this.
So the whole idea of being folky or folk-influenced in black metal has taken a lot of shapes over the years. Um, anywhere from, I mean, like, smart people can recognize the folk in Emperor and, uh, you know, into more obvious stuff like Bakhtasiv Fjell from around the same idea. Uh, you know, moving into stuff that is like folk black metal, uh, which we probably, for the most part, don't enjoy. Um, but then, you know, really appreciating the folk undercurrent of black metal itself is something that seems to be coming back right now. Uh, you know, a lot of the riffs on this record are centered around simple kind of folky phrases. Um, the idea of... Uh, you know, obviously a lot of the tremolo riffs on this record are going to be very kind of Graveland-inspired, you know, like uh, following the Voice of Blood or earlier. Uh, but also, hmm. what I really detect on this record is a big influence, like bigger than the previous one, uh, from Branicald in particular. Especially early Branicald, you know, the, the real cassette stuff, you know. Uh, you know, this this song in particular, Woodland Waltz, could be something off a storm ride, you know? Yeah, okay, I hear that. And then, so Branicald would obviously flatten it out into something simpler and more just looping continuously for God knows how many minutes, you know, creating that trance-like effect. But here, um, you know, these ideas are compressed down into these simple phrases which then split off in really dramatic ways into other ideas. Uh, there, something about this record which really struck me is that these songs are composed kind of like suites of uh, individual ideas connecting uh, rather than the kind of continuous flow we usually expect from black metal. Uh, each of these songs, uh, and they tend to be fairly long songs, are based off of, you know, three, four ideas that have, uh, you know, a minute and a half, two minutes apiece to express themselves, and then there's some connective tissue that links them to the next one, um, which sometimes uh, could sound janky or could sound uh, a little bit incoherent, but this guy is really good at linking those ideas and creating these kind of abstract pictures of nature uh, that the best black metal always does. Yeah. Um, so... In, yeah, so like, it would for a precedent for some of that sort of more uh, Blazebirth sounding stuff, would it uh, interest you at all to check out a quick clip from the end of uh, a track on the last record? Because yeah, I think sure. this is a side of that record that's been brought out here. Uh, let me just double check and we'll, I'll bring it up. Yeah. 
So that was the end of that song, Clouds, I was talking about from Time Wheel. Uh, it's a pretty cool part, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very old school BBH. Yeah, and you can tell how he starts on those big droning Drudk chords, and there are more of that on Time Wheel. Uh, and, you know, you can imagine a sort of slow-moving wall of clouds, and then just bang, slides right in, right? Sort of like the wind picks up, and you get this uh, this riff that takes those big wide chords and narrows them down into like two-string chords that have this more... Uh, more biting, immediately melodic rather than harmonic quality. Uh, and it's got that, yeah, it's got that sort of uh, a shape that has more to do with those sort of free-flowing, vaguely folk-based melodies in the BBH, right? It sort of stutters in a weird place that you wouldn't expect. Um, and so it's kind of like he, uh, there are some other moments like that on Time Wheel, but it really sounds to me like he's taken the energy of moments like that and built them out into this whole record, which is like, I mean, about as cool a possible, I didn't think he was going to do that, and like that's like the best possible option. Um, so, but you know, so that, that, that cloud sample and then the Woodland Waltz, right? The Woodland Waltz tonally, a lot like the the harmonies in there are very you know basically the same you get on clouds and there are other parts of uh, um, time wheel it evokes. There are also some much darker, uh, more more tense harmonies throughout this record, and we get a little bit of that creeping into the folkish melody here on Hexenring. Uh, so uh, listen for the power chord tritone. It's in there, I swear. Yeah. 
Did you catch that drum fake out? Yeah, a little bit. I I, mean, I was so focused on the way the uh, the lead just never stops, you know? Yeah, so we start out in a blasting section with a palette that's kind of close to the more, more storming parts of Time Wheel and kind of just to the samples we both played, right? Uh, goes into this little more... Uh, th- this sort of uh, more turbulent Slavic folk melody kind of right and then um, it drops the drums cue like we're going to uh, cue like we're going to like halftime or something stutter blast it's kind of a similar fake out to the just dip into the blast part at the end of clouds um, and yeah the sustain on that is crazy. He's just gone through... This sort of thing just isn't done much in nowadays black metal. He's gone through two intense blast riffs. He fakes you out, and then he drops you into the center of the song, which is entirely based on relentless blasting. Mm. Um, uh, and yeah, and so un- underneath it, you've got that buzz sign kind of... Womp, womp. Boom, 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 kind of emperor tritones, and over it, uh, that has this folk melody angle, but it's a lot more dissonant. And then, you know, those that kind of sinuous thing you could hear on a like thousand swords, maybe Graveland or something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, it just doesn't end. Uh, yeah, I, I really like the idea of. And this is something we're starting to see more nowadays. Uh, the idea of not so much having a continuous riff and the lead changes over it, but a continuous lead and the rhythm riff changes under it. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is a really sophisticated, interesting technique. Because what it does is, you know, it, it alters the context of the lead. You know, the lead means something different. Uh as it hovers over each riff underneath it. Uh, That's really cool. It's a really elaborate way to create a continuous thread through a song, but constantly change the underlying mood and rhythm of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, It's it's a thing he didn't really have on Time Wheel. One thing that was remarkable at Time Wheel is the whole album is made from a single substance. It's just these rich, dense rhythm guitar chords. And that's what you get all the way through. Uh, flowing through a, several, a, a new, very, very nuanced harmonic modes, right? But, like, it just is that tone. Um, this he's introduced, these more free-floating lead guitars and stuff like that. And yes, they're not working like conventional leads. Uh, it's um, that melody basically is the whole is the song is the core of the song. Um, it's gonna drop out a bit, and then he will introduce more a more doom variation in the riff underneath it, and then that riff will become a little less ominous and dissonant, and a little more textured and ringing, and it will almost sound like the lead has faded out but it hasn't and like your brain will still supply it and then it comes back uh and um it's and this is another evocation of natural form in the music just like you can hear the the storming clouds on the you know on that last track uh 
this like the track's called Hex and Ring, right? Which circle in the woods, right? Like circle of mushrooms or circle of standing stones. That's mm-hmm. the ring, right? You can hear the witches looping around the ring in that like iterative looping phrase. Uh, and um, towards the end of this song, yeah, you're talking about sonic events here. The end of the song, we actually get like witch singing, uh, and there are new riffs, like suddenly. There's like dramatic events happening in the songs in a way that is uh, kind of above and beyond. Yeah, no, the the idea that there is a meta progression in these songs beyond the simple riff to riff format is something that basically every great black metal band does. Mm-hmm. And the thing that strikes me is that it's more than the conventional. Like at this point, we talk about like the big back end riff, right? Two thirds of the way through, you pull out the riff you've been saving, right? Yeah. He pretty consistently, he'll like do something in the last quarter or eighth of the song, and it's like a decisive turn, right? It's like that thing he did on Clouds becomes a general principle here. And so, you know, like three quarters of the way through Hex and Ring, which is otherwise remarkably continuous and a nine minute song more than three quarters through we get we get this like new riffing and like uh female clean vocals and all that uh you know um it's structurally interesting yeah definitely so one thing i want to bring up with my next sample is uh i detect and i i i want your input on this as a guy who has a uh, mm-hmm. pretty solid and sophisticated knowledge of greater Rus black metal, so to speak. Um, the Mist of Sleep. I detect a subtle but really intense undercurrent of death metal on this record. Hmm. Um, you know, we, we've talked here and there about uh, the idea of, you know, black metal hegemony, about how basically everything sounds like black metal now because it's just, it's had this kind of sprawling influence over everything. But I think this is a guy who listens to black metal sincerely in the way that older Russian and Ukrainian bands did uh, and really incorporates it into his black metal. Um, oh, I think you meant death metal, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> you said yeah. listened to black metal. I mean, to be fair, I, I I definitely enjoy listening to black metal sincerely and incorporating it into black metal. Yeah, listening um. to death metal sincerely and incorporating <laughs> yes. it into black metal. Yes, thank you for that save. All right, so there's going to be an obvious note, and I'm going to give that to you. You know, to bring up we mm-hmm. we've talked about it before. But uh, let's listen to the first couple minutes of The Mist of Sleep and then talk about that as a possible aspect to this record. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Yeah, it's the one that's like uh you know that's it okay yeah i mean you can perceive that as like a kind of oh this one yeah that 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 would be considered a nowadays kind of bridging black metal riff but just listening to it it's like I get a death metal energy from that. Just that, that that punching, sort of driving energy behind it. Uh, that reminds me of shit that I've heard in, you know, Deicide, Morbid Angel, you know, stuff like that. And I think that the death metal quality has always been important to uh, Ukrainian and Russian black metal. And the example is going to be obvious and I will give it to you to quote. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we've, we've talked on the show before about hate forest as a band that is as influenced by bolt thrower. Uh, and well, I mean like the hate forest formula is basically like, uh, Eternus, Hades, bolt thrower. There's one more that I'm going to be forgetting in there. Um, but, uh, oh, maybe like Graveland. Um, but, um, like the, uh, yeah, Bolt Thrower is a core influence for that. Eternus is also kind of a death metal band, depending. Um, yeah. Important. And is kind of a death, you know, a dark metal band, and yet pioneered a lot of the glorious sounding guitar techniques used by the Slavs in some ways. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I hear that. I hear the death metal energy. Um, it sounds to me like a black metal riff, but it also sounds more consonant to me than it does to you. They're just very close consonant intervals that make it sound kind of folky still, I think. I'm not humming it right, though. No, It I, is very no, hard to hum. I get what you're saying. It's, um, it's consonant, but also couldn't it be one of the more consonant riffs on Blessed yes. Are the Sick? I was about to concede that to you. Yes, it could. It could be one of the more constant. It could definitely be on Blessed Are the Sick. It could also be on Covenant. Um, yeah. It could be like one of the more sort of like tense kind of neoclassical sounding riffs on Covenant. The other stuff it sounds like is the death metal riffs by Dissection. Yes. Which I'm sure sound like Morbid Angel. Like, I mean, yeah. uh, so this sort of nexus of black, like, yeah, yeah, sort of like, um, Sinister spiritual death metal or death tending black metal of the early and mid 90s. I hear that for sure. That makes sense to me. And I think, and also just, you know, um, we've talked about this on the show too, just influenced by, you know, that punching driving energy used to be in black metal when the black metal people were listening to Morbid Angel and like, and Deicide yeah. and stuff. So, you know, like, I mean, Pre-Nightside Emperor sounds like that. Early Mayhem sounds like that. Uh, but those are ideas, when I think of black metal, I think of that energy, but it's certainly not where the genre has gone. And also, that level of attack is not associated with, um, say, the Blazebirth Hall bands. Unless you're talking yeah. about, like, yeah. Oh, no, definitely. You know, I, I think that the, you know, especially after doing the show with you and talking about it more i think the 
importance of death metal's influence into early black metal is kind of underrated. And uh, I think yeah. it still filters in, in weird ways. I mean, you know, like the obvious one is, like you said, you know, Hate Force covering Bolt Thrower. Uh, clearly, it's been very important to deep, intense black metal scenes uh, throughout the years. And uh, I, I feel like there's more of that than usual on this record, especially in those really kind of gnarly riffs that are still still tremolo, still have a black metal energy to them. However, a lot of the cording, a lot of the, you know, the basic melodic ideas strike me as very death metal in certain ways. They're also, uh, he's, he's good at the very propulsive, rhythmically frantic kind of riffing that isn't, yeah. the, you know, again, that was more common in the 90s, but even then was, you know, even then the black metal bands often favored more drawn out phrases. Uh, mm-hmm. So that I, I hear that. Um, also, this would be a moment to talk about the, pr- the production. So that's another place in which everything that was most distinctive about Time Wheel, everything that made it different from the expected Atmo Black thing, or even expected folky pagan black metal from, you know, a Slavic country, has been boosted up. So, Time Wheel is notable for being loud, and for for having a beefy, even somewhat noisy guitar tone that was very forward and substantial. Just this Mm -hmm. thick tone running through the whole thing. Um, this record is louder, as you pointed out. <laughs> um, it's basically the same tone, which is an outstanding one, but it's, uh, you know, pushed to the foreground. And again, it's asking, although a lot of the melodic ideas are coming out of this Slavic tradition of black metal, and it's asking to be listened to in a way that's very different from how people have come to listen to it. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. Like actually so, engaging with it immediately rather than leaving it as sort yes. of background meditation music. Yes, this insists on not being background music. Um, yes. Uh, you know, and that's part of like the way the riffing, one reason that the riffing on this record is so masterful, right? It's, again, this was present before, but now it's brought out more, right? kind of the opposite of what was happening on that Arlac record, sadly, is that this record had the kind of clarity that Arlac at their best did, um, which is like every single riff has this clearly defined form. Uh, you know, there are, it's not just, we're not dealing with the sort of nebulous vortex of, you know, sort of searching Branicald guitar parts, right? There's like mm-hmm. shapes seen in the storm wind, right? Or like lightning caught in slow motion.
right, so you got some chugs on here. So there, there's another death metalism for you, in a way. Although they're not really death metal chugs, but the 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 cording and the riffing is definitely pretty dissonant. But uh, I guess what we're getting here is a uh, um. You know, another example of what seems to be one of the main techniques this guy has, which is you move from those uh, more lush, lush, droning, drug, maybe hate foresty type chords. Uh, you know, you have the big uh, sorrowful melody descending. Um, you let it ring out. And then from that broad harmonic range, right, you focus it. And instead of just going to those, like, two-string chords, he's now focused down to just, like, chug and power chords, right? It's the sharpest it's been. So it's, like, the most dramatic version of that sort of, like, broad to focused, broad to narrowed spectrum. Um, and then at the end, he draws it back out again, broadens the sound again. And a lot of bands just only work within one of those orbits, like, it's either the big, lush chords, or it's like, we are a, you know, a two-string chord band. Uh, and he's just constantly moving back and forth between those. Uh, um, the, uh, the, there are also a couple specific reference points in that part. That's, the, the chug part is notable for still sounding very druggy. And what it really sounds like is the most energetic, furious Drudg record and a Terminus favorite, The Swan Road. Uh, and a specific song on it called Glare of 1868. Uh, and maybe also there's this moment at the last Winter Filleth album where Absolved in Fire breaks out into these chugs. Um, but um, yes, the underused uh, Slavonic pagan black metal chug. <laughs> 